0: I'm Tonya Fitzpatrick.
1: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints.
2: The civil rights movement of the 60s opened up access to some economic power that Blacks had not had previously. I mean, what I remember most about the results of that movement, and it didn't happen overnight. It took years of plugging away at it. Affirmative action came out of that. And that allowed blacks to have a lot of employment that had not been available prior to that and as a consequence blacks were in positions where we had never been before because prior to that most of the jobs that black people held except for rare occasions were menial jobs you know domestic service janitorial work that kind of thing and that also opened up more educational opportunities for blacks because they began to see that if they got an education they could actually use it.
1: That's Janet Cheatham Bell, nonfiction author, scholar, soon to be playwright, and mother of W. Kamal Bell, the host of CNN's United Shades of America, has seen a lot in her lifetime. In this episode of World Footprints, Janet joins us for a conversation on her life's journey, an examination of this seminal moment in our history, and the newfound interest in the dozen books she's written on race matters.
0: From humble beginnings in her hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana, Janet went on to graduate from Indiana University, and then to launch a career as a librarian in Michigan, my home state. Not only do we have that in common, but were also family, as I learned. After her proposal for her doctoral thesis was rejected by Stanford University, Janet set out on a publishing and writing career and never looked back. In her memoir, The Time and Place That Gave Me Life, Janet explored her early life in Indiana amid segregation. She followed that with the second part of her memoir, In Mixed Marriage exploring her own interracial marriage that defied the laws of the era. With provocative writings such as Not All Poor People Are Black and Other Things We Need to Think More About, Harvard University professor Henry Louis Gates holds Janet's contributions to African-American writing in high esteem.
1: Here's our conversation with Janet Cheatham-Bell.
0: Janet Cheatham-Bell, welcome and thank you for joining World Footprints. I'm happy to be here. Before we launch into your, your stellar career and world events and travel, I, I first want to ask, how are you? I know you're on the West Coast. Things are closing down again. How are you and your family and how are things going?
2: Well, I'm happy to
0: say that we are all
2: healthy. I was just with them uh, last night. So that was good because it was actually the first time I had been anywhere in four months. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they usually come to visit me, and we visit outside in the courtyard of the building where I live. But I hadn't been to their house in four months. Wow. So it was I was excited. I'm going out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it does lift your spirits a bit, doesn't yeah. it?
2: <laughs> but otherwise, everything is going really well.
0: Good. I'm glad to hear that. So speaking of last night, you had a cameo on your son, uh, W. Kamal Bell's show, uh, United Shades of America. And I want to say thank you because something you said and something that Daryl Davis uh, said, who was also the the jazz or the blues pianist, Mm -hmm. Something you both said really resonated with me, um, and it basically had to do with what Ian and I have been talking about all along with, you know, on World Footprints is the connection power that travel has, the ability for travel to not only change your preconceptions about other people, but really showcase our common humanity, Mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful because during this time, this crazy time with social unrest and COVID-19, I've been struggling with this message, how to keep this relevant or even if it is relevant. And what you said and, and what Daryl said on the show last night validated the message that we, uh, we share with on World Footprints. So thank you. <laughs>
1: Glad to be of service. (laughs) We're dealing with a lot in this country. It seems like we're going through a racial reckoning of sorts where the chickens have essentially come home to roost, as we've seen since the death of George Floyd. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, the civil rights movement, uh, we've made some steps forward, we've gone back, and here we are uh, having lost a tremendous figure in John Lewis, and uh, he would often remind us that uh, the civil rights movement has made progress, has brought some significant changes in America. And you were there as a product of that time seeing firsthand what was going on in the 60s and so forth. What would you say today about where we are as a nation?
2: Well, I think the biggest change is that the civil rights movement of the 60s opened up access to some economic power that Blacks had not had previously. I mean, what I remember most about the results of that movement, and it didn't happen overnight, it would, took years of plugging away at it. Affirmative action came out of that, and that allowed blacks to have a lot of employment that had not been available prior to that. And as a consequence, blacks were in positions where we had never been before, because prior to that, most of the jobs that black people held, except for rare occasions, Or menial jobs, you know, domestic service, janitorial work, that kind of thing. And that also opened up more educational opportunities for blacks because they began to see that if they got an education, they could actually use it. When I was growing up, lawyers had jobs in the post office because they couldn't get jobs with law firms. So black people didn't see that getting a college education was worth much. But after the 60s, when an affirmative action and those things happened, Blacks were hired in some places where they had never been hired before. And I know this from personal experience, because nearly every job that I had in my entire life, I was the first Black person to hold that job, Mm. which is ridiculous, but true. And so now that we're having this new sort of reckoning, as you referred to it, Blacks are feeling more powerful in their demands for new accountability than they were feeling 50 years ago. So I think we're approaching it on a different level than we were 50 years ago, because first of all, there are all these Blacks in positions of power within the media, not nearly enough, of course, but there are some who are able to create a different media image of black people than has ever been created before. And there are black people on camera who are speaking to issues in a way that most news people never spoke about them before. Mm-hmm. And then of course, I think my son showed the United Shades of America where he shows what they have dubbed intersectionality, where he shows that all of us who are oppressed have the same enemy. And as a consequence of that and our current president's ability to offend everybody except for a small group of his supporters, we are beginning to understand that we have more power if we stand together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a small group of supporters, uh, until they disagree with him, then, the, then it's enough. Yeah, yes, no. yes,
1: exactly. I'd like to explore with you, given where we are, and I reflect back to the late Ralph Wiley, who wrote a book, What Black People Should Do Now. What do you think black people should do now, given where we are?
2: I think we should continue to be cognizant of our power. And to continue to cooperate with other oppressed groups and build coalitions and work together to topple that little white male patriarchy that has been oppressing everybody. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's what I think we should be doing now.
0: Are you seeing anything new or different during Black Lives Matter movement? Are you surprised that it has taken, taken on a global, has become a global movement?
2: I was surprised at that. Yeah, I was very surprised at that. But again, I think that has a lot to do with the technology of our media nowadays too, is that whatever happens anywhere in the world, The rest of the world can find out about it instantly, Mm -hmm. whether it's on television or not. It used to be that we had to wait for television to get our news or or radio, but now we don't have to wait for that. The news is instant on people all over the world are hooked into Twitter and Facebook and all of these social media things.
1: You've been listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers.
0: So is anything new happening here that you're you're seeing? that didn't happen during the Civil Rights Movement. Do you see, I know there's a lot of similarities, but are there some differences you see as well?
2: Well, the big difference is earlier, Civil Rights Movement was nearly all black. I mean, there were a few white people, of course, but not to the extent of the white people who are involved in it now. And also more young people are involved now. Uh, Although there were young people involved then as well. As a matter of fact, most of them were young because the older people were sort of like, don't rock the boat. You know, (laughs) there's definitely, uh, it's a more diverse group, definitely. All these young people really give me hope because they are the future. I mean, all of these old, old white men who are digging in their heels, they're not going to live forever. So the young people who are involved really give me hope.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Janet, you are a prolific writer, having written a dozen books, and I understand your books are now flying off the shelves, if uh, we can say that, since we don't really have bookstores anymore. But I, but I guess they're being packed up by Amazon and going all over. Tell us about this stage of your career, given where you started in this area of African-American writing, African-American studies. And now there's such a demand and such a hunger to read these essays and read these books that you've had. It's got to be pretty gratifying.
2: Yes, it definitely is. And it's also kind of amusing to me because, you know, (laughs) I mean, some of these books have been out there for so long and uh, were, roundly ignored. Uh so it's kind of amusing to see, well, I guess I was ahead of my time. What can I say? <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm very gratified too. I'm glad to see that people are reading my books. I really appreciate that.
0: I know you're writing a play as part yeah. of a, a project. Uh, tell us yeah. about that. And and I think you mentioned you You haven't written for a while or you haven't done a a book for a few years, but you're still writing.
2: Yes. uh, The last book I published was two years ago. There's usually a lot of space between my books because it takes me a long time to write Mm -hmm. them because usually my books, I do a lot of historical research because I've only written nonfiction prior to writing this play. I do a lot of research to make sure that my nonfiction is accurate because although my memory I think serves me pretty well. Sometimes it gets a little skewed. And so I have to check the records to make sure, is this what how it happened or did that happen first? So it takes me a while to write a book. So I probably, another couple of years, I'll have another book out.
0: What about your play? Do you have a... Well, I'm working on
2: the, I'm working on the play right now. Okay. And this is my first time ever... Writing, you know, make creating something out of whole cloth. Usually I'm writing about stuff that I've had experience with. I'm just making it up as I go along. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. I think I'm putting some more grooves in my brain.
0: Can you give us a little um, exclusive on your play?
2: (laughs) All I can say is that it will not venture far from from the subject matter of the rest of my material. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Maybe I'll do a little bit of research and try to connect the dots.
1: (laughs) Now, we're hearing a lot about words and stylistic things that Speak to the moment in which we find ourselves like, you know, we're having this huge conversation over whether mainstream media should capitalize the B in black and revisiting words that may have origins drawn from the colonial era, racism, sexism, and so forth. What do you think about all of this stuff and kind of revisiting language within the times that we find ourselves?
2: I think it's great because language shapes how we think about things. I think it's absolutely essential. And of course I've lived through many iterations of what black people are called. I remember the whole brouhaha over whether or not to capitalize Negro. Hmm. And um, they decided that it should be capitalized. And then later we decided, no, we don't want to be called Negroes anymore. We want to be called black people. So yeah, I, I think it's necessary. And also The thing that I think is most important is that people get to name themselves and not have to labor under a label that somebody else has foisted on them. If a group of people says, do not call us Redskins because we find that offensive, and do not name your sports team Redskins because that offends us, they should be respected Mm -hmm. and listened to. And it's really unfortunate that it took so long for that to happen. But yeah, and I think the statues that praise traitors to the United States should be pulled down. Yes, I agree with all of that. Because when you know better, you're supposed to do better.
0: Where we live in the travel space, there's been a lot of dialogue between travel journalists um, who question the new AP rules, you know, capitalizing black, not capitalizing white when referring to a group of people. Uh, But then other words like antebellum and confederacy, you know, when people are writing about the South, I know there's a lot of confusion about how should I refer to a Confederate home or a plantation or an antebellum home. And um, when performers are changing their name, like Lady Antebellum is uh, removed antebellum from their name. And do you have any thoughts on those types of sensitivities and how they should be treated? If Lady Antebellum wants to change
2: their name, I, I don't have a problem with that. I didn't have a problem with them calling themselves Lady Antebellum either. What that said to me was that, oh, this is a Southern group. Maybe they aren't, but that was what it said to me. Oh, this is a group from the South that wants to elevate their kinship to the antebellum period. That's how I interpreted it. And it also said to me that I'm not interested in that group. If they do want to appeal to everybody and not just people who find that acceptable then i think it's a good idea for them to change their name the whole thing about capitalizing black and not capitalizing white that to me doesn't seem fair i mean if you're gonna capitalize black why not capitalize white i don't understand the reasoning in that i accept my son said as we capitalize the clan we should capitalize black
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah he has a point yeah <laughs> This is World Footprints, and you've been listening to publisher and writer Janet Cheatham Bell sharing her inspiring story of perseverance, persistence, and the lessons she's learned along the way.
1: We're not traveling much now because of COVID 19. On OSR, we've been cooped up in our homes. Mm-hmm. In terms of your travels, and I know you've traveled extensively, how have your travels informed your writing over the years?
2: Well, my family traveled a lot as a child. We went on trips to historical places and went to parks for picnics and things like that. And we visited other family members. But the first travel that I did that really sort of opened me up was when I moved from my hometown of Indianapolis to another state for a job. For me, what that did was it liberated me to be completely Myself, because nobody in this new place knew whose daughter I was or whose sister I was, and they didn't have any preconceived notions about who I was, Mm -hmm. so I could be whoever I wanted to be. That felt very liberating to me. I think I wrote about it one time and said, I felt like Frederick Douglass when he escaped slavery. (laughs) I'm a whole new me. (laughs) (laughs) And it helped me to learn how to meet new people without fear and without preconceived notions. So that was very liberating for me. Traveling to other countries was liberating in another way because I learned that people are the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. They have different cultures, different mores, but the human nature, being human, is the same everywhere. And it has nothing to do with color or culture, any of that. There used to be a cliche, traveling is broadening. I agree. Mm -hmm.
1: I think (laughs) your stories there really resonate with us and just hearing you talk about leaving Indianapolis and as I understand your that job that made you leave Indianapolis, took you to Michigan, correct? Yes. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And for me, I had a similar experience. I went from my home area here in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, and I moved to Michigan. And the same feelings that you mentioned about being free, being liberated, no one knowing you, it, it allows you to reset and reinvent yourself and I haven't looked back since, and neither have you, so I really appreciate you sharing that.
0: And from my perspective, too, you know, living overseas, I mentioned uh, I lived overseas, being a person of color overseas was so, it was very liberating. We actually just posted an article about Black American travelers who are happier and feel safer right now overseas. One of the um, people interviewed said that there's a lot of power and empowerment in our little blue passport because... When people learn that you're an American, their tone, their energy, everything it changes. And it's almost like they, you know, they give you preferential treatment. You know, they show some deference where, mm-hmm. they, you know, where they wouldn't before. And I think, you know, we saw a lot of that with artists back in the 40s and 50s and 60s leaving this country yeah. because they found a, fo- a home overseas. Right. What is your most memorable and or transformative trip that you've taken?
2: Hmm, that's a good question.
0: I guess probably
2: uh, when I went to Nigeria, because, you know, one of the things definitely at the number one top of my bucket list was going to Africa. When I went to Nigeria, it, was, it satisfied something in my soul that I needed or wanted to experience. It also showed me how much alike, fundamentally, those Nigerians were to American blacks. Mm-hmm. And that was very, you know, informative. I remember going to what they called a New Yam Festival in Nigeria even though I couldn't understand the language, the rhythms and the call and response were exactly like the Baptist church that I had grown Mm. up (laughs) Mm.
1: (laughs) in. Sounds like you may have segued away into our next question, but do you have a soul country, a place that you've been, you mentioned Nigeria, that really speaks to you or or has spoken to you?
0: Or feels like home, just home away from home. I can't say
2: that I found that in another country, but the first time I came to the Bay Area in 1970, I felt this was home. Hmm. And and this is my third time living here. This felt like home to me. It was really sort of like surprising and and gratifying when my son decided, because he was born when I was living out here the first time, but then We left when he was about eight months old, but when he became an adult, he decided he wanted to go live in the Bay Area. And we were really surprised, like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) something in him wanted to go home, you know. (laughs) But I can't say that I've had that feeling in another country.
0: You told me that um, one of the things, you know, still kind of maybe on your your list to try is to live abroad or at least to have a place do you have have you chosen where you'd like to live abroad for a little bit
2: the only uh european country that i have ever wanted to visit i still would like to do that i don't know if it's going to happen is spain mm-hmm. That is where I would like to go live. I'm not sure why because I don't even know how to speak Spanish, although I know I can possibly learn. As a matter of fact, I think when I finish writing this play, I'm going to learn Spanish so that when I go to Spain, I can at least speak the language.
0: Absolutely. Oh, well, well, you know, I mean, the rhythms there, too, maybe resemble more of an apostolic church, <laughs> you know, Pentecostal <laughs> church. So, so you'd still find it, you'd find home there. Mm-hmm. I wanted to end with a um, kind of a rapid fire question that we always love to ask our guests. When the world resets, and we can all go back out and travel, uh, when it opens up to us, if you could choose Anyone, either past or present, to sit next to on a long-haul flight, maybe to Spain, who might that be? My Angelo. Mm. Yeah. She didn't
2: know it, but she was my mentor. <laughs> First of all, I like the fact that here's a Black woman who doesn't fit any of what we call our standards of beauty, but who was one of the most beautiful people who ever walked this earth. And brilliant and prolific in terms of her production, not only in terms of writing books, but in performing and speaking and uh, making movies. I mean, she was a Renaissance woman. I did meet her a couple of times, but it was at book signings where she just signed my book and I moved on. So I never really had a chance to talk with her, but that's somebody that I would really like to talk with. And I love the fact that she did not tolerate bigotry or profanity in her home. I love that. Mm. The only other person, if I couldn't have Maya, would be uh Ida B. Wells.
1: Mm.
2: Ida B. Wells is my um uh, activist mentor. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you can have you know more than one mentor and and it (laughs) satisfies every interest in your life (laughs) janet cheetah bell thank you so much for for joining us today and um thank you for having me it it is our pleasure and we thank our audience as well for for tuning in Janet is amazing dear, but one of the things that I really appreciated about our talk was that she filled in a lot of gaps for me um, About our family and so I I have a lot of new names to put into Ancestry.com So I'm gonna be amazed to see who else pops up in my family line And another thing that I really loved about our conversation was how one of our favorite guests, Maya Angelo, resonated with, with Janet and just the, again, affirmation about how travel can transform your life. The interesting thing is that a lot of Janet's transformations took place domestically. And so, you know, it just goes to show that you don't have to necessarily go abroad to experience the transformations that we've been talking about.
1: Indeed, Janet's transformation, as she says, that big one from Indiana to Michigan, neighboring state, was transformative for her. And then she went on to Boston, later Chicago, the Bay Area, back home to Indiana to write these memoirs. And those memoirs are very powerful memoirs. They cover those untold stories, those seldom spoken about parts of American history through her personal lens. And again, as we've been saying about narratives, controlling your own narrative, uh, sharing your story, I think that's really powerful. And it just speaks to where we are at this moment, that these stories that she's had for decades are now at the forefront of a lot of discussions and are moving thought and thinking along, not just in academic circles, but amongst regular people who are buying her books in never-before-seen numbers.
0: Right. And you know, I was very impressed with the fact that she is continuing to evolve. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, when they get in their 70s, 80s, 90s, that they should just hang out and watch television. But bless her, she's writing a play, so she's embarking on a new career as a budding playwright. And unfortunately, even as family, I couldn't get an exclusive about her play.
1: (laughs) But hopefully we'll get a chance to see it sometime soon.
0: Yes. In closing, we leave you with the words of American author, screenwriter, and filmmaker Robert Allen Arthur. Cultural differences should not separate us from each other, but rather cultural diversity brings a collective strength that will benefit all of humanity. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers and be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.